0: Right. Well, uh, last week uh, we looked at if you were with us, we've been kind of working our way through Acts, and uh, last week we looked at how the resurrection of Jesus changes us. Right? It changes us. It converts us. It's kind of what uh, Jesus would say with this guy he he ran into in, in John chapter three, this guy named Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus one night he said, Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again, right? That's the idea of be converted, be changed from the inside out, and that's what the resurrection does. To be a Christian. It's not just to kind of tip your hat to the intellectual facts of, yes, I believe Jesus rose again. It's to, yes, believe that, but also to bank your life on those facts, right? To give your life to those, Um, to see the value, worth, the treasure of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and forsake everything else to follow him. But what happens after that? So we saw Paul, Saul, sorry, I keep saying Paul. He will be named Paul later, spoiler alert. (laughs) I keep saying that. But Saul, we saw last week, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was changed. And and now we're going to see through his life as well as Peter's, we're going to see how God is is working in in their life and transforming them. And in doing so, what I want you to see is is just basically, this is almost like the, the first steps after you become a Christian. So if you're a new Christian, or been a Christian for many, many years, decades. These are the things that hopefully are very practical this morning that we're going to pull from the passage to see how Jesus transforms your life and what areas and what ways. And if you're not a Christian, this is a good opportunity to kind of see what it is um, that Jesus does with someone's life and how he can take anyone, anytime, anywhere, and completely transform their lives. All right? So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at uh, how the Holy Spirit does that and changes our lives in this way. We're going to look at um, how we should strive to get connected, is our first one. Get on mission, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Get prepared for suffering, we'll talk about that. Uh, Get digging into the gospel and last serving, all right? So hopefully super practical this morning uh, as we kind of walk through uh, this passage. So let's begin. Number one, uh, get connected, chapter 9, verse 19. I love the first thing. Saul does. Now, this is after we've seen Saul you know, come to Jesus here. He's met him. He's been transformed. Uh, the first thing he does after his conversion to Jesus is he gets plugged in. He gets plugged into the community. He gets connected uh, to the local church that is around uh, with fellow believers. And This is essential for you as a, as a new follower of Christ. It's, and it's essential for us as a church to welcome people like this, right? So look at verse 19. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. All right, let me pause there and let me fill in some information because a lot of times in the Bible you'll find it's not an exact timeline, meaning it's not telling you what happened day one, day two. Sometimes there's some space in between the details, okay? Um, And so here, if we go all the way to Galatians, the book of Galatians, uh, that Paul writes, uh, sorry, Saul writes, becomes Paul. Um, and, uh, And so the one he writes in Galatians gives us a little background information about what actually happened when it says here, after these days. Actually, after these days, it was more like three years of time. So it's about three years of time here that took place. And part of that three years was uh, Paul would explain in Galatians 1 that he was out in Arabia, um, the, the desert there, uh, actually was discipled and met and taught by Jesus himself, very much like the other disciples that saw Jesus after the resurrection and had those kind of post-resurrection Bible studies where Jesus kind of walked them through, like, hey, here's the Old Testament, here's me, right? And here's what, I, here's what you're going to be doing, here's what I did, all that. So Paul had that same kind of situation, same thing happened. Um, and so he was there, he met with them, he met with fellow Christians as well in Damascus. But notice here in the text, the people that he was with, and I love, always love the titles that the Bible gives to followers of Jesus here. Here they're called learners, that's what the word disciples means. They're just learners, right? He was learning together uh, with them about, about Jesus because no matter how, how long we have known Jesus, we're always considered to be learners. There's always something new to learn. There's always something new way to grow, right? We're never, we've never arrived. We never reached perfection, the side of heaven, okay? We're always got areas in which we can grow and learn, and that's what he was. He was, he was with the fellow learners. Everywhere Saul went, both here in our passage in Damascus and later we'll find in Jerusalem in our passage, he seeks out the followers of Jesus and seeks to be with them, right? So wherever he goes, and this is important for you because you, your life may not always be here, right? You may get moved out. You may have to go to, you go to college or you get a job transfer and you go somewhere, whatever it may be. You may retire, go somewhere else. Whatever it may be, wherever you go, you're searching out, where can I find fellow followers of Jesus to be connected with? And that's what we see We'll see this throughout Acts. Wherever Paul went and other believers went, they always sought to find that body of believers. And so this is, this is a mark of kind of true conversion. You start wanting to be around and with other people that love Jesus. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 1, I'm sorry, First John chapter 3 verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. So we know one of the evidences of faith in Christ because we love our brothers Whoever does not love abides in death, right? That's just one of, the, one of the marks of knowing you're a follower of Jesus is that you seek to connect with and be with and love those who love Jesus. So when you're converted, you're, you're brought in. This is what we call this discipleship. This is what Jesus did with his, you know, the followers he had, right? He called them disciples. He discipled them. He spent time with them. He spent time together. You need to walk with some believers, spend time with them. And time is the key here. We live in a, in a culture, it's very hard, it's very relentless, very uh, restless culture. We never seem to have time for most things. But, we, but if you're going to grow as a Christian, uh, you can't expect to do that on your own, okay? We've seen this throughout the uh, time you've, heard, you've been with me, you see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, you can't strive and really grow on your own. God created a human race, not just a human being. He also created a church and not just individual Christians. Okay, In the church, when we say church, we're not talking about the building or structure. We're talking about the people. And so you need community to grow. If you're a new Christian, a new follower of Jesus, you need to attach yourself to others who have been walking with Jesus a little longer than you. And it doesn't necessarily mean age. I mean, they may be younger than you, right? and Physically younger than you, but they've walked with Jesus longer than you, and they have something they can give to you. They have something they can pass on to you. They have wisdom. They have understanding that they can pass on. I uh, remember, um, and it is, again, this is super important, especially as a new follower of Jesus, but always in stages of life. I remember as a new Christian, you know, when I, when I came to, to know Jesus at 18, I knew little to nothing about the Bible. And my gain of knowledge of understanding of Jesus and of the Bible and of what it means to look like Jesus and be like Jesus was not just reading it in the Bible, it was talking with, walking with, right? Asking a lot of questions. If you've met a young Chris, <laughs> um, I just was relentless on the questions, right? I just had to ask a lot of questions. I actually keep, I used to keep a fold. this is back in the day before you know iPads like I have now, my little notepad, and I had it written down, all these questions that I had that I needed to ask because I didn't know, right? And so that was my case. That's what happened to me. And th- so I remember even when, as a new believer, they, you know, they threw me out in New York City. I was went to school in New York, and, and, uh, and they, they had this open-air evangelism thing they would do on the streets of New York City, and they would take these, like, paint boards, and you like, draw a picture, maybe some of you have seen this before, and you kind of draw stuff, and you kind of draw a crowd, and you literally get a soapbox, this is what I did when I was 18, and you preach, and uh, most of the kids I was with, students I was with was terrified, and I was kind of more like Scrappy-Doo, and I was like, let me at them, like, I'll do it, and, you know, they'd throw me up there, Chris knew, knew little to nothing, but I knew enough, right, um, about Jesus to, to do that, but I was always in those situations where I just asked questions, get to learn that. When I became a new, um, when I became engaged, right, I asked, I found, I found a guy in the church that I saw that loved Jesus, loved his wife, and I thought, okay, I'm going to meet with you whenever you got time. I got questions because I don't know what it looks like to be a husband, right? I, I grew up with a dad who was a husband but was a very poor one, okay? So I uh, had no idea what that looked like. When I had kids, God blessed me with two at a time, right, with twins right off the bat, never held a baby in my life. You know what I did? I went and found, I found dads in the church. And I said, okay, you got to help me out. Again, I had a dad, but I would not consider anything I wanted to model after the dad that I had. So I'm like, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I follow Jesus and love my kids, right? So just always asking questions, being around the community. That's why God gave us the church, okay? One of the, one of the many reasons why he gave us the church. You say, so how long should I, uh, should I hang around the church and ask questions? Always, <laughs> Okay. Questions are welcome. We should be a very very welcome to, to uh, receiving questions from one another so that we can grow. And we should find others as you grow that you can answer their questions and pass on your wisdom, right? So as you gain information, understanding, and as you gain wisdom, and as you grow in Jesus, pass that on to somebody else, right? Um, I would remind you again that according to Galatians 1, Paul probably spent near 17 years uh, with this community of believers, in and out. Kind of 17 years before he ever actually went on his first missionary journey. There was a lot of time. There's a lot of space of time before Acts 13, 14 hits. It takes time to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. Stick with it. Progress, not perfection, is the key, right? Too many times uh, we're like the, the elementary school kid, a grade school kid who, who's complaining about the fact that they're not growing, right? I'm not getting taller. But we know the marks on the, on the door frame tell a different story, right? They are. They're growing. They just don't feel like it from yesterday to today. And as a Christian, you are, right? You're growing. You've got to stay plugged in, stay connected, and can continue to grow in that way. All right, number two, um, get on mission is the second part. Get on mission. So verse 20, we find, so, so Saul's kind of hanging out a long time with the body of believers. And then it says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So he goes on through here. And so we find during those three years after his conversion, Saul would go to the synagogue um, up until this point understand the only church in existence was the Jerusalem church, okay? There wasn't other churches, local churches in the area, <laughs> anything like that. It's the, it's the only one. And, uh, and the only way that even followers of Jesus or believers in God would actually go to church, as it were, was actually they go to the synagogues, where they would learn the Bible, okay? So here we find it was there that he engaged people um, about Jesus, even though, again, he knew very little, thing, very little about him. Saul so knew Jesus lived the life he couldn't live death. He should have died to save him. He, he knew he rose again, and that was enough, right? You don't need a master's degree in theology to tell people um, about Jesus. That's not over professionalize this whole, this whole living on mission, being a missionary type thing. We all are those. Even from a brand new believer, we're, we're, we're to be these. I remember, uh, again, as I, I came to Jesus when I was 18, I've told you this many times, but <laughs> I remember when I, when I came to Christ, I, I, um, I was at a pizza hut, you know, 18 years old, March of 1995, and I'm sitting there and, uh, and I, I'm super excited. I come home, I gather my family at that point, my mom, stepdad, stepbrother, stepsister, on the couch. I don't know what time it is, it's late at night. I was like, I gotta tell you guys something. And so I probably gave the world's worst gospel presentation, because again, I, I, <laughs> I knew this much. And so I just gathered and I tried to explain it to them. And I, they all had kind of this like, look on their face, like, what just happened to Chris? Like... What's he gotten himself into now? Like, what, is, what is this thing he's talking about? And, uh, and I didn't know much, so I took these things called tracks. You may not know what these are, but these little, these little written little, little pamphlets, basically, about the gospel, which I felt explained it better than I could because I didn't know much. And so I just hid them all around the house, literally. I, I, would, I would tape them to the mirrors. I would, I would tape them around like milk cartons inside the refrigerator. I even like, put them in sun visors, so when they dropped them, it dropped down their lap. I taped them to liquor bottles. Like, I mean, I just taped anywhere I could find a spot in the house. I hit them. Um, and I, but I didn't know much, right? But you don't have to know a lot, right? You just I have to know Jesus. And so sometimes we, we, we feel so paralyzed but well, I can't, can't really engage people about Jesus. because I, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Stop using that excuse. If you know Jesus, you know enough, right? You may not know all the answers, and that's okay. You, you may need to grow a lot. That's okay. Do it, right? Dig in. Keep growing. We'll get to that in a second. I'm um, getting ahead of myself, but it's important that we, that we do that, okay? And so again, Saul doesn't live his, his, his beginning years as a Christian kind of like a monk in some ways, you know, hiding out and, you know, then all of a sudden after he gets his professional degrees, he starts, you know, becoming this missionary that he is. Um, this living on mission is just as much a part of living in community as it is digging into the gospel. You say, um, you say who are these people that I'm to reach, Chris? Who are these people? And, and you find it's, it's really those who are closest to you, um, who live around you, work with you, at the places that you frequent. When you first come to Jesus, those existing relationships are like low-hanging fruit, right? Those ones that you're already in relationship with um, and to begin to uh, engage and tell them your story. Tell them what happened to you. Tell them how you, how you came to Christ, right? These are uh, easy ways to do that. Look down um, here in the passage now, down to verse 28 through 30. And I think it's interesting, when we're jumping down a little bit, and we'll come back to this in a minute, it says he spoke and disputed against the here. They were seeking to kill him. Uh, the brothers learned of this. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I love that he got sent off to Tarsus. Maybe, maybe you know this. Uh, he's called Saul of Tarsus. It's his hometown. Like, the disciples go, okay, Saul, you're a new believer, let's send you back to your hometown. Let's go back to the people you grew up with, the people that you knew, and that's where he goes, right? He goes back to the people that he knew. Pretty, again, pretty simple, pretty basic, but I think sometimes we, we lose sight of that, that God has got a whole mission field around you, those existing relationships in that way. And so... Um, so we find that, and this is, again, how, how, we are, how we are to function as well. You get converted, you be discipled, you go back into the old context you were in with kind of like a rope tied around your waist, like an anchor called the church, right? You grab maybe other brothers and sisters of Christ to go with you, pray for you, keep you accountable, and that's how this is supposed to work, is how we engage, we help each other in that way. And look back at, uh, at verse 20. You, uh, if you look at... at uh, um, Back up at verse 20, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. So here we have, can you imagine for a second? Let's step back a moment. Remember who this guy is, okay? And what the Jews and the synagogues know about him. This is where he got the the, the mission orders to go kill Christians, right? This is where this is where the hometown kind of is of where he was sent from in Jerusalem. Can you imagine being the Jews in that synagogue this this, this very morning? Um, I, it's like having, uh, I mean, just, they were completely shocked. I mean, they probably had their mouths open, like, what is he talking about? He's supposed to be attacking Christians. Now he's one of them. Um, I imagine, again, it's like um, Dog the Bounty Hunter. I don't know if you guys remember Dog the Bounty Hunter. It'd be like Dog the Bounty, Bounty Hunter teaching a knitting class, right? It's just like, what is going on up there? What is happening? Some of you may not, most of you may not get that one, but that's okay. That's the reaction I think of when I see that. So they, they didn't know what to make um, of Saul after, you know, after all, he was on their side, right? He was on their side, at least they thought he was. Um, these guys are annoyed at the Christians. They're glad to see Saul at first because he's going to help them get, get them out of their city. And now he's on the other team, right? He's been, he's, he's traded teams, as it were. Can you imagine when he first showed up that first Saturday after he was converted? I mean, we, they all applaud him maybe as he comes in. He sits down. He starts reading maybe something out of the Old Testament. They're like, yeah, God's a warrior. You know, this is great. You're going to take out those Christians. I don't know, congregational singing of God's going to cut you down by Johnny Cash or something. And everyone's all amped up. It's like a pep rally. And they're all excited. They're thinking they're going to tell him what he's going to do. And he turns around and says, and just turns it on them. It's like, no, God's actually, you need to come to Jesus. <laughs> it's like, I mean, the place is probably completely in uproar at this point. And I love his boldness. Again, even though probably most, honestly, in that synagogue could run circles around him uh, theologically in some ways. He's still a young man. He probably didn't know a lot about, I mean, the gospel. He, he knew enough of it. Um, but he knew he was alive. Again, it was enough. Don't limit what you think God can do with you with, with what knowledge that you do have. Number three, be prepared or get prepared, actually. Get prepared. You say, get, get prepared for what? If you're a follower of Jesus, get prepared to suffer, okay? <laughs> you're like, what? I didn't I came to church just morning to tell you that. Yes, yes, you need to know that. That's super important. Some people think when you come to be a Christian that all of a sudden life just gets real easy, right? God's on my side, it's smooth sailing from here on out. It's like in in many ways, and you could talk to people who have been following Jesus for a long time, in many ways it gets a little harder, right? Or maybe a lot harder. (laughs) There's there's suffering that comes along with that. Coming to Christ doesn't alleviate pain and suffering, right? Um, And it's important that we know that. Jesus had already told Saul, if you remember back last week, that he was going to suffer. Remember? You're going to suffer for my name's sake. Not for his own sin. He's not suffering for his sin. Jesus paid for that. But he is going to suffer for Jesus' sake. Um, and so will we. And so conflict and suffering will come. And it'll come in two, two different places. And, and you may always expect these two. The first way, and we'll look at both of these, it comes from the outside world, okay? External suffering. But the second one is actually also comes from inside. You know, in, internal suffering, from the church even. All right, and we'll talk about that one because that's what happens with Saul. Number one, external suffering. So verse 23, you find here the Jews are plotting to kill him. And they're, they're watching the gates. Here it says they, they're ready to kill him. Disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So eventually the, the Jews, you know, he'd gone to this, uh, the synagogue enough. And they were upset at him now because maybe he's a traitor. I mean, he's like, he was like Johnny Manziel in the NFL draft, you know, some years ago. Big disappointment, right? He's like, this is the guy we drafted? Like, this is the guy that we have? He's supposed to be, like, heading up our, 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 our order, the arm of our group here to uh, take out the Christians, and now he joined them? Like, what is going on? So they're really upset, and now they want to kill him. Um, and so, uh, so Saul hung out in, the, in kind of the city there. He looked at the gates of the city, which is the only way in and out. That's why it says the gates was the only way in and out of the city, and they're standing guard. There's no way to get out without them capturing him. Um, and so they're there uh, hoping to find him and, and kill him. It's quite ironic, isn't it? to think about it. The, the, uh, the man who came to this very city to hunt down Christians is now being hunted himself. This must have been part of what Jesus meant. Again, I will, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. But here we find the church. We find the community helping him out. And it's quite of a turn of events again. I don't think any of them imagined a month ago that they'd be helping Saul of Tarsus, okay? I don't think that was anywhere on their radar that this was what was gonna be happening. And so they put him into a basket, like a baby, and they lower him uh, through a window at the wall. So think about that again, the irony of that. He who came um, to, this, uh, to the city with, as it were, pomp and circumstance with this group, awaiting the, the kind of parade, is uh, being like a helpless baby being let down the side of a wall. How humbling and sharpening uh, this must have been uh, for him as well. You need to know when, again, you become a Christian, things don't necessarily get easier. Okay, Counterfeit Christianity is always out there. And there's a counterfeit Christianity that will tell you that, you know what? Christianity is easy. It's safe. It's comfortable and all of that. But the real Christianity is tough. Saul's life got much harder. As you'll see throughout the book of Acts, it did get much harder than what it was before. Um, and that happened. But his assurance of the future, his assurance of the love of God, his assurance in the love of the saints was more than enough to keep his head above water. If someone told you that you come to, come to uh, be a Christian and follow Jesus, that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, they sold you a bill of goods, okay? That's not how it works. L- listen, just to give you, I'm not just saying this stuff. Let me just give you a couple verses that say this. Philippians 1, It's been granted a gift. The word of grace. <laughs> it's a grace. It's been gifted to you that for, the, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. You're like, oh, I like that. I, I like that gift. Jared talked about that. Pastor Jared talked about that gift here just a moment ago. Um, but also to suffer for his sake. It's a gift. You're like, I don't want that gift. I'd rather, <laughs> I'm good with the first part, not the second part, but it's all the complete package here, right? Acts 14, later on, verse 22 in this book, it says, strengthen the souls of the disciples. This is Saul, now Paul, going around to the, to the, follow, the followers of Christ. Encourage them to continue in the faith. That's great saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So he was telling them, like, guys, this it's going to be tough. Uh, John 15, Jesus himself would say this, uh, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John sixteen thirty three: In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay, So it's just, this is a sampling of the many, 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 many verses that I actually deal with this. But the most shocking experience a lot of times, this is important that we deal with this, it's in the text, but it's also important for our lives here. The most shocking experience of your new Christian life is typically the conflict and suffering that can occur within the church, not just from the outside world. Sometimes you're prepared for that. Okay, in the outside world, it's going to be tough. But I didn't know I'd get, it'd be tough inside. I didn't know I'd have, have some, some tough relationships even within. But you need to remember that, uh, that, that even, that all followers of Jesus are still sinners. And that also, not all who claim to be followers of Jesus are actually followers of Jesus. We saw this with Simon back in chapter 8. So let's look at this internal suffering. Look, look what happens. Verse 26. He came to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples. The word attempted there, for you guys who like, who like grammar for a second, is a present tense, active. What that means, basically, is he attempted multiple times. Not just once and said, fine, I quit. <laughs> like, he, he tried, can you imagine, he tried to join the church. He tried and it didn't work out for him. They didn't want him. <laughs> okay? That's gotta be hard for a new, a new follower of Jesus. He tempted, and it says, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And so we find here that Saul he he gets the mocks, he kind of go back to Jerusalem. He gets there, it's a big deal, right? He, this is where again where he came from, this is where his orders came from. This is the headquarters of the operation that he was sent on to kill Christians, and now he's now he's one of the Christians. And, uh, and so he's there. And notice, again, he attempted to join several times. He was great with the disciples in Damascus, but when he goes to Jerusalem, they wanted nothing to do with him. Why? They were afraid. What are they afraid of? It's a trick, right? This is, this is all part of the whole deal. He's, he's gonna come in. He's gonna come in like a spy. He's gonna infiltrate, right? He's gonna be part of our group. And he's gonna turn on all of us and kill us all, right? And that's what they're... Th- I mean, in some ways, we can logically go like, yeah, it kind of makes sense because this seems pretty far-fetched. I mean, this is not just just any Jewish man coming to Christ. This is actually the leader of the group that wants to kill them coming to Christ. And so this is what happens to him. They're afraid it was a trick, and so they shun him. Um, can you imagine what it was like for Saul, showing up, thinking they were going to maybe rejoice, maybe be excited about what Jesus had done in his life? This is amazing. Again, another evidence of the historicity of the of the Bible, right? If you're, If you're writing this and you're trying to trying to tell a lie to get people to believe it, you don't add this stuff. You don't say, hey, one of the greatest converts in the history of Christianity tried to join the church and they didn't want him. <laughs> like, you don't say that. You just kind of eliminate that story. Let's just not talk about that one. That doesn't look good for us. But that's what happened, right? It's just, it's just telling the history, telling the story as, exactly as it happened. And this is important, right? Some of you uh, have a beef with the established church, right? And rightfully so in some ways. And maybe you've been hurt by the church. You realize... Again, realize something. It is full of brokenness that Jesus is making whole. And you're part of that. There's not a church in existence that isn't broken in some way. And some of you have this, may have this habit of like you go to one for a while and you kind of get burned, right? Because there's some, some brokenness there. And you're like, Ugh, I don't like it. I go to the next one. And then they go there for a while and they're like, Ugh, I didn't like that. I'd leave too, right? You just keep bouncing kind of around and around and around. Understand it, it's broken everywhere. <laughs> I always remember... Uh, Charles Spurgeon is a pastor back in the um, 1800s over in England. And uh, he had people in his church tell him uh, he, they were leaving um, and they were going to go to another church because this one's full of hypocrisy. And, uh, and so Spurgeon, being pretty witty as he was, says, when you find, when you find that church please don't join it because you're going to ruin it. <laughs> um, but it's true, right? It's true. They're all, all broken. And we've got to own that and not act like there's any perfect church. It doesn't mean we deliberately try to hurt people. It doesn't mean we deliberately try to like, not, not welcome people as was happening here. We seek reconciliation. We ask forgiveness. We seek, to, we seek to be more like Jesus and all of that. But it's important as a new believer you understand that. Everyone in this room is a sinner. No matter how... Nice they may look, okay? Every one of them, all of us, me included. We're all sinners, okay? We're broken. And that, but, but we need to seek to love each other and work together and continue to grow in that way. Now, what I love about this passage is Barnabas. Do you see what he did? Everyone there kind of said, no, we don't want anything to do with Saul. What did Barnabas do? He stood up for him, right? He, he came alongside of him. He sticks up for him, stands with him. Um, he's, he welcomes him, right? He believes him in that way. Um, it's important, again, that if you see someone struggling to get plugged in, or maybe they're just, they're just cautious because they've been burned before, to go out of your way to welcome them, to go out of your way to, to care for them, to listen to them, to answer their questions, to help them feel welcomed. that's right? a very important part of us being a local church that Jesus wants us to be, okay? Um, we're, not just, we're not just called on mission to reach those who are lost. That's is definitely a big part of that. We're also called to help out broken, you know, hurting Christians that are kind of been jaded by the church. Okay? That's also part of what the local church is supposed to be uh, as we reach out to people. I think it's very, very, very possible if it weren't for Barnabas here. Can you imagine? I imagine Saul being him going like, you know what? Forget this. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I try to tell you my story. You, none of you believe me. Like, you shun me, I can't even join the only church that's in existence at this point. Um, I'm just going to say, forget about it. He doesn't do that. And I think a big part of that is because Barnabas actually welcomed him in, came alongside of him, loved on him, cared for him. And maybe if it wasn't for Barnabas, maybe, maybe this rest of this book wouldn't have been written. Maybe the new, the rest of, many of the New Testament books would have been written, right? It's an important role that Barnabas had in just welcoming and caring. And you have that same role as well. All right, number three. Uh, get digging is our, is our uh, number three here. It's imperative that you grow in understanding more and more of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he wants uh, from you. This is what we see going on in the early church, right? They sought to dig into the word, into the gospel, seek to, to know Jesus more. And we'll see this later with lots of groups of people. If you go to chapter 17, you'll find this group called the Bereans. And they're searching out the scriptures. They're, they're seeking out the word. They're trying to understand who God is. Uh, look at verse 31. The church uh, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace that was being built up. Now, this is an important note. I told you a few minutes ago that the only church in existence was a Jerusalem church. Now we're starting to see new churches pop up, right? We see this There's churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, right? There are different regions, different groups of people. The gospel starting to go to the ends of the earth. That's where it's beginning to go now. We see that. And it says they had peace. And again, the peace there is not an absence of conflict. That's not what peace means. Biblical peace is like calm within the storm, as it were. It's an assurance, a hope, a faith in the gospel that God is for you and not against you. That God is working out a sovereign plan ultimately for good. Right? That's what that's biblical peace and what it means. and so they're getting, they're getting built up in the gospel. And it says here also this, this being built up and growing actually produces a fear of the Lord. And again, I've, we've talked about this before too, that fear of the Lord is, can sometimes in our English language not be quite as uh, understanding. And that is, it's not trepidation. It's not that they're scared to death of God, you know, and they're scared that lightning's gonna strike them or something, right? And every, behind every, you know, every, every sin that they do, they're gonna die. That, that's not what it means when they say they, they, believe, they, they grew in the fear of the Lord, um, because they know Jesus has already been cut down for them, right? He's already faced all of that for them. He's already satisfied the wrath of God for them. But what happens when you understand the holiness and beauty and love of God, you begin to have an awe, respect, and amazement at the absolute holiness of God that you actually have access to him, right? That's that fear of God. That's that awe, that respect that kind of comes in. It's looking at the holiness of God, not just understanding you know, uh, not just understanding of God, you know, God is a God of ethics or God is a God of rules. It's it's a, God, it's, it's a God that's holy. And when I say holy, it's not just a holy, 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 like separate from us, but holy as in uh, a good way to understand maybe the flip side of holiness is that God is without blemish. God, God is without defect. He's without fault, which means basically the holiness of God means God is perfect and beautiful. There's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> There's nothing repulsive about him. That is a good way to look at the holiness of God. There's an attraction to God. That's what His holiness is. And that produces that, that fear that He talks about here. It says it also produced uh, comfort as well. The Holy Spirit comes with the deal in the Gospel. You come to Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit, He brings comfort. Matter of fact, His name, Jesus says in the Gospels there is there's a Greek word that's used. Maybe you heard this one, paraclete. Uh, not parakeet, like a little bird. Paraclete. Um, it, uh, and it means uh, a counselor, right? The Holy Spirit's the ultimate counselor. The one, literally means the one who comes alongside of what the Greek word means. He comes alongside of. He brings comfort. He brings that peace. He brings that assurance and the promises of the gospel. And he tells us, he reassures us what Jesus taught. Jesus said this. Listen, John 14, verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Chapter 15 of John, verse 26, when the Helper comes, again, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. John 16, verse 13 through 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he would not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's teaching you about Jesus. I'm just telling you about him, right? That's through the word of God. And uh, as a follower of Jesus, you need to grow in the gospel. And one of the only ways to do that is to be in the word, to hear the word, right? That's part of the preaching of the word of God. It's part of the reading of the word of God. Um, You'll never experience that peace that surpasses all understanding if you're not drinking from the fountain that is the scriptures. You'll never feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit if you don't taste and see the Lord is good in the scriptures, right? This is an important part of growing as a new believer, a new follower of Christ or one for decades, Number four, serve, get serving. Once you are converted, things change again from the inside out. One of the main things the gospel does is it changes your heart to serve and to give and to sacrifice because when you look at the life of Jesus, that's a good summary, right? <laughs> that's exactly what he did, to serve and to give and to sacrifice. That's that, that was his life and death, right? I mean, even you think of John 3, 16, for God loved the world that he What? gave, right? There's a giving of God, the heart of God. And so that's what God does in your life, begins to change you from being selfish to selfless, right? You begin to want to serve and help people. It makes you see people differently and want to, and want to help. It will, um, and you'll be moved to serve both the community on the outside as well as the community on the inside. Without the gospel melting our heart on a daily basis, we will still be selfish at times. We'll, and we might serve but we'll do it only because, you know, we feel like we'll serve people that deserve it or we'll do it because kind of serving our own selves and get our own applause. or so doing it out of guilt to kind of sway, you know, kind of satisfy some guilt that we feel. But we get the gospel we want to serve, both outside and inside. Let's look at both of those. This external service is the first one we see here with Peter, verse 32. Uh, we find him um, here. It says, Peter went here and there among all of them, among them all, came down to the saints who lived in Lydia uh, there he found a man named uh, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, paralyzed, um, and find him, he heals them and many people come to the Lord. So here we find Peter again. By the way, he's been missing since chapter 5. We haven't had any stories. He's, he's still been around. He's still there, still doing his thing, still loving Jesus, telling people about Jesus. And so we find him and we think maybe, you know, based on some of the traditions that have happened in the history of, uh, of um Of the church I guess we would think he'd be sitting on a throne or something with some popish hat on waving to throngs of people who are applauding him that's not what's happening at all right he's down with the people he's serving he's ministering to people getting his hands dirty he's just one Christian among all the Christians he's not he's any better he has certain gifts that he wants to use to serve that are unique that's great but Peter's just like another follower of Jesus just like anyone else And we're going to see that Luke includes this as a snapshot in the day of the church. He wants us to know that change is occurring in both the speakers as well as those who are listening, those who are hearing. And here we find Peter here, and he finds a man. And according to the language, I believe it, this guy actually is not a believer. He's been bedridden for eight years. Every day, he lies down, look at the ceiling without any hope of it ever changing. But Peter sees him. Peter heals him. And many people, including this man, I believe, comes to Jesus because of it. And it seems from the language as well that Peter went to encourage some Christians and he sought to serve alongside them, their city, their people around them. As a believer, again, you should be motivated to go together with your fellow believers to serve the locations where God has placed you. The gospel should push you, push you to serve and love um, those around you that don't agree with you, right? Don't see things the way you do. Um, and watch God use that to transform people's lives. That's the external part. So a big part of that, you're a new believer following Christ, you need to serve people outside of the church. But there's also a second part, the internal service. There's a serving to one another. And we find Peter doing this, right? Verse 36, we find um, in Joppa, we find a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I always, always wonder why they translated that. I'm sure this poor girl didn't want her name translated. It's like, can I not? Can we just stick with Tabitha? That sounds a lot better than Dorcas, right? Um Sorry, I said, I, I, not to be Parents are naming their daughters Dorcas. If you are named Dorcas this morning, I apologize. Um, but anyway, she's a sweet lady. She loved Jesus. She had a lot of fruit in her life, right? Obviously, she had impacted a lot of people's lives. She's known by her, by her church, by her community as those who she serves. Those outside and inside. Uh, she's, she's sick, and then she dies, and uh, and they're preparing her for burial. So, verse thirty-eight. Peter comes down. And uh, some guys go and get him. It's about 10 miles away is where the city is from where Peter was. These two guys get him. Uh, they bring him to the house, and they see that, um, that she's, she, you know, he sees that she's dead, right? And so uh, he's there, and he's there to serve, and uh, he goes up to see her. He has everybody kind of leave. They all tell, him, tell Peter about her testimony, about her story, about all that she had done and all she had, how she impacted people's lives, and so verse 40, carried on here, he, he, gets him, he, he tells him, to leave the room. He prays to Jesus. She gets up. Um, he tells her to get up, and she does. And he showed her to them, and word spread like crazy, obviously. You can imagine that uh, and many people came to know Jesus as a result. So it's important, again, as a follower of Jesus, you seek to serve the community where you live, but also the church where you remember. Right? This is both, we see Peter serving the community, the outside community, and the inside community. And though you may have gifts you know, that differ from Peter's here, okay? We all have gifts to serve, right? Gifts to serve one another. It's important you don't neglect them. Uh, the pattern of the New Testament is the followers of Jesus did both. They, they served their community outside, and they served the community on the inside. And we've already seen that in the book of Acts, and we'll, we'll keep seeing that. There's both an internal and external component. Um, so as I as I, we kind of wrap all these things up this morning, I want you to consider how each of these practices, these first these first four steps of a follower of Christ, right? These kind of first kind of baby steps as it were, are all things that Jesus himself experienced and did for you so that you're free to do them out of out of grace and out of a love for Jesus and not out of guilt or shame or any kind of way of assuaging those things. We don't do these things out of obligation uh, or because we feel like Jesus needs us. He'll make that clear later on in Acts 17. Jesus doesn't need us for any of these things. Uh, We do these things because of what he has done for us and freed us to do joyfully. Think about it. Jesus was connected, right? He was born into a family. He grew up in a community. He spent the last three years of his life not alone. He spent them with the disciples, a community of disciples, but... Jesus also lost the community of the disciples, right? They all abandoned him. They all left him in his hour of need. Even on the cross, his own father turned his back on him because Jesus became sin for us. He lost his community so that we have the privilege and joy of having, right, community. That's all part of that gospel message. Jesus also was on mission. We see this just in his very birth, right? The incarnation of Jesus and, um, and in Jesus' statements of coming to seek and save the lost. Yet he was rejected, um, so that the mission he would give to us would succeed, right, as a result. Jesus also suffered and experienced conflict. He faced it both from the, the Jews as well as from his own friends and as well as from his own family, right? He experienced that internal and external conflict, right? You're not alone on that one. Um, his own brothers, it says in the Gospel of John chapter 7, didn't believe him. Told him, did not believe anything he said, which is crazy, his friends, they all abandoned him. Uh, turn, even one of, them, his, one of his closest one turned him in, named Judas. And he was killed so that you, may have, you might have the hope and would be able to endure the hardship and rejection you're facing today. In the gospel, Jesus tells us that he will never leave us or, nor forsake us, even if everyone else does, right? So it's important you understand that. Um, Jesus also dug into the gospel. He grew in understanding, a relationship with God. And though he was fully God, he was also fully human. And we find many times in the Gospels, he kind of goes away to the mountain to pray, right, and to spend time with God. He prayed, he studied, he learned. Um, he lived a perfect life so that, uh, so that you would have a standing before God. Uh, this means you, you learn, again, about him out of freedom, not out of guilt. You learn out of joy, not obligation. You know, Positionally, before Christ, you're already sanctified, you're already set apart, Right? But this motivates you to practically seek to be more and more like Jesus. Lastly, Jesus served. Read the Gospels, right? He did that. He cared for the loss. He wept over the city. And yet he wept over his friend Lazarus as well, who, lo- who he loved. Cried out in pain over the abandonment of his father and friends. He served us all the way to death. So in turn, we would have the power to serve and pour our life and sacrifice with no need of anything in return. Because of Jesus' death, we can now serve selflessly and really love people for Jesus' sake, right? Uh, for his sake and not our own. And so the reality of the cross, the reality of the resurrection changes us. Have you been changed by the cross? Have you been changed by the resurrection of Jesus? Has these things we just talked about begin to flow and change in your life? You know, as we go to, uh, to communion, I want to encourage you, because this morning was meant to be super practical here, is to take one of those four areas and look at them and go like, you know, I, need to, I think I really need to push in on this one, Right? Ask God which, which one of those you need to push in on. Share that with another follower of Christ. Someone can walk with you, encourage you, hold you accountable to growing in those ways. And so this communion we take, this bread, this juice, and the little cup there, if you have that, we had them back at the table back there. We take that in remembrance of Jesus. He told us to do that. When we gather together, we do it in remembrance of him. Because ultimately, guys, this time together right now is about him. We gather because of the person and work of Christ. We take communion to remember very tangibly the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. So as we take some time of quiet, you reflect, see what God has spoken to you about, how God, how God is, is, is uh, kind of prodding and pushing on you, um, and then when you're ready, you may take communion uh, and open that cup there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for transformation. We just learned, God, that the gospel doesn't... Um, it's not just an intellectual assent. It's not something we just, we, we check a box for. It's, it's something that we do check a box for, for sure. It is definitely truth. But it's the truth that transforms us. It changes us. The whole point of God, you uh, giving us these truths of the gospel is so that we become more like you, both in how we think, how we act, our attitudes, how we see and treat people. May God, you change those things in us. May you help us remember who you are, what you were about, what you did for us, so that, God, we can be the same. We can be like you. And that's ultimately what we, what we gather for, God, to see you, to know you, be changed by your grace, to, to walk out of here and be like you to our, our, our surrounding community and to our local church as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.